It's time for us to begin our Wednesday night service. Good to see everyone here tonight. We're glad that you're here. We have folks that are visiting with us tonight as well, and I know saw several making their way in, so uh, people will be coming on in. I know it's July the 4th weekend coming up, and several are going to be out of town. Several have already left, and so we want everybody to be safe in their travels. Uh, Our summer series continues tonight. We've had outstanding lessons thus far, and that's going to be true throughout the entire summer. And uh, we appreciate uh, the work that's gone into uh, the invitations to invite such quality speakers to come in, and certainly tonight is no exception. We're very, very happy to have Brother Scott Gleaves, his wife uh, Sherry, uh, is with us tonight as well. They're sitting right back uh, toward the middle. And, of course, they have three grown children. And I understand a granddaughter, almost three years old, Amelia. So uh, I know that uh, they certainly enjoy her and spoil her. Spoil her. Uh, Brother Scott has preached for 30 years in Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and Alabama. Uh, Currently, he has the very important position as dean and associate professor of New Testament at Faulkner University, doing a very good job there uh, as the leader of that Bible department, and uh, certainly we hope things continue to go well there. We appreciate his good work. We appreciate his ability and his talents in spreading and preaching the gospel. And so following a song, uh, a prayer led by John Cackleman, who's visiting with us tonight, uh, we will turn it over to him. I thank you for the opportunity to be here with you. Uh, I don't know if you have an outline, but I do have outlines. If you want to raise your hand, I'm sure somebody would uh, pass them out to you if you don't have one already. <clears throat> I know you've had uh, a lot of good speakers, and uh, I hope I can uh, uh, keep the, uh, <laughs> the standard going uh, that's obvious in your uh, summer series. Uh, I haven't been back to Delrada. I think it's been a couple of years, maybe three years since I've been out here uh, to talk. I can't remember, but uh, always glad to do so and appreciate the work. I want to th- say thank you for your support and prayer of the uh, university, and particularly the uh, College of Biblical Studies. Uh, just to give you a little update um, about us, just, I'm going to give you about you know just a couple of minutes of what's happening because you may not know. We have about 66 uh, undergraduate Bible majors, majors uh, which is up on the high end of what we usually have, which is good. Um, in 2013, we established uh, the Curley Graduate School of Theology. We've got three master's degrees. And we also began a doctoral degree. We have a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies in Old Testament and New Testament. When I came in uh, 2011, um, we had about five people in the graduate program. (laughs) Now we have over 60 uh, in the graduate program. And that's because of um, um, a lot of work that we've been doing in the College of Biblical Studies. So it's been really exciting. We've got about 15 doctoral students, and we only started it just a few years ago. And um, we'll have our probably highest enrollment this fall. So uh, I want you to know that your prayers are very uh, needed for us. Uh, we want you to know how much we appreciate uh, you, whenever you're on campus, we hope that you come. Uh, I hope to uh, visit with you. You're always welcome. Uh, and be assured that the College of Biblical Studies um, will remain sound and we are um, 
involved in, in improving our, our work and our programs and, and have a lot of other things on the horizon. So uh, keep us in your prayers, and I hope to see you on campus. Uh, I contacted Terry when he gave me the uh, topic. Uh, it was um, uh, on the idea of uh, saying or calling someone a fool. And then I read the verses that went with it, and they had nothing to do with it. You know, in, in Matthew 6, uh, 1 through 4, it has to do with uh, somewhat of hypocrisy. So I wrote to him, and I said, which do you want me to do? Do you want me to do the biblical text that you assigned me, or do you want me to do the topic? And he said, do the topic. So I chose the biblical text. No, I, I, I chose the topic, and we'll uh, look at the uh, verses in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus uh, gave us. Uh, a, a very interesting sermon, of course, and I know that your speakers have talked much about the Sermon on the Mount. The interesting thing about Matthew... Uh, is the way that Jesus is presented. And uh, you may not realize it, but the audience itself, of course, is a Jewish audience. And we know that because of the many references to the Old Testament Scripture. It's in Matthew when something's done and then the, the author will say, this was done to fulfill what the prophet said. And we have that laced through the Gospel of Matthew. And so we know that the audience has a, a Jewish a heritage. We know that the audience is, is, is dealing with Jewish ideas. The Old Testament's very important. And uh, so Jesus, in the presentation that Matthew has of him, is presenting him as this, this new lawgiver. Uh, that's like Moses. I mean, there's so many parallels between Jesus and Moses. Moses went up in a mountain. And so in Matthew chapter 5, we have the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount beginning when Jesus went up into a mountain. You know, uh, we have the idea of um, um, Jesus being that uh, one who brings people out of sin, the Exodus and, and various other things. Uh, even in regard to the Torah or the law of God, um, we have five major speeches of Jesus in the book of Matthew sort of parallels the, uh, what we would refer to as the Pentateuch, you know, the five books, the law. And so much is being made of Jesus being that new lawgiver, the one who is the new Moses, the one who is giving the, the new testimony, the new Torah, the new guidance, the new truth. And so it's, it's very significant that when they hear Jesus, People are impressed because Jesus doesn't depend on the rabbinical teachings. He doesn't depend on anybody else's um, words or teachings. He says, I say unto you. And when they heard him preach and teach, he was unlike anybody that they had faced before, that they had heard before, because he is, of course, very unique, the Son of God. So I teach the um, uh, ethics Biblical ethics, Christian ethics at Faulkner. And guess what I use as a core biblical text? It's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I mean, it is the, the fundamental core of the ethical uh, mandates of Jesus in his kingdom. And it's so far-reaching just for society as a whole. And it's so crystal clear, I believe, in how Jesus presents what life is all about and how we interact with society, with culture, and more importantly how we interact with one another. That says more about your Christianity than anything else. Did you ever think about that? How you act toward people says more about your faith than anything else. Oh, I know we have the five steps of salvation. I know we have the, the makeup and the pattern of the Lord's church. I believe in all that. We teach it. 
But that is meaningless if we don't have God's people who live the way God has designed us to live and to act and to speak. And so we can have the right things, we can sort of have the right plans, but if we don't have the right life, then we're in serious trouble. Jesus brings this out in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, so much of Christianity is based upon the doing, not just the knowing. And that's where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> uh, that's the big challenge. I remember uh, in preaching, I was once preaching in Tallahassee, Florida, and there was a young man who had become faith, unfaithful in the congregation. And so um, I tried to reach out to him, try to help him, teach him, encourage him, do what I can. Uh, but he just wasn't interested. He wasn't interested in, in worshiping. He wasn't interested in engaging in, in the Christian life and the standards of Christianity. And I kept hearing him do various things, you know, that we would assume are wrong, of course, violating the will of God in various ways. And, uh, and then I heard an interesting thing. He ended up debating a co-worker about one of the tenets of the Churches of Christ. This co-worker was a part of a, another fellowship, another you know, religious uh, denomination. And uh, he was defending the, the church and one of its tenets. You know, um, uh, the, the thing he was defending was the, uh, you know, uh, acapella music. Um, and he was, he was trying to teach and he got real upset and he was trying to be aggressive in teaching what the truth was in regard to worship. And then I, I, I approached him and I said, and that's really interesting how you can be so uninterested in worship you can be so uninterested in how to live or to live right, treating your wife well, being a good parent, doing what Christians ought to do, and yet you take this individual to task on this particular doctrine that evidently you want to defend. It was a little bit ironic, don't you think? What would it matter if you won the argument? Was the Lord's church defended? No, it's not defended because his life is a testimony that he doesn't believe in what he's trying to argue. And so it's very important for us not only to hold to the truths that we know that are true, but we have to restore the life of what Christianity is. The restoration is still valid. And so it's, it's the challenge, I think, of Jesus in his ministry and in his teaching to try to... Um, Put a mirror before our faces. And uh, I don't know about you, but um, a mirror can expose things. And scriptures like that, it can expose the flaws as well as what, you know, may not be flaws. It can expose things you may not see. And so it is important, as James would say, for us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. And so I ask you this question. Have you found yourself... In situations where you made comparison with others, like uh, someone has done something that's horrible or, or whatever, and, and your particular righteousness is affirmed because you don't do that horrible thing. <clears throat> We've all been impressed with um, the news and all the things that have happened over the last month or so, 
Orlando, Istanbul, all of these places that uh, we are seeing the violence, horrible things that people are doing to each other. <clears throat> and the first thing that I would, would do, or at least uh, tell myself, if I'm not careful, is these, these acts are horrible, and I'm not like that, and therefore I'm okay. <clears throat> and the question is, are we okay? Because we don't do those horrible things. Have we deceived ourselves by comparing ourselves to what others do? And we wouldn't dare do that. But yet, over my 30 years of ministry in the church, I have seen horrors upon horrors in congregations and how people treat each other. Paul would call that murder. John would call that murder, metaphorically. And that sort of puts it in a whole new ballgame <laughs> because now I'm being challenged with my own judgmental views when I should be challenged to live the standard of Jesus. It's always easy to pick out faults in others and deceive ourselves that we don't have any or we don't recognize them or we don't confess them. And so this is why Matthew 5, 21 through 26 is so profoundly important in my judgment. Let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, get into the text and see if we can come to an understanding of, of the challenge that Jesus is making. <clears throat> of course, you've already been introduced to uh, the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure. This is the occasion where we have several things when Jesus says, you've heard it's been said or it's been written, but I say unto you. Uh, the first thing he starts out with here in our particular text is that you have heard that it has been said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, that's the law. And the law teaches us to refrain from acts of murder. Who doesn't get that? Right? I don't know of any culture, ancient or modern, who would not consider murdering, homicidal murder, wrong. Now, even those who may murder or commit atrocities, there's a purpose that they have. To them, it is justified according to their particular religious beliefs or perspectives. But even... In those particular communities, there's laws against the malicious taking of their neighbor's life. Who doesn't get that, see? It's just so obvious. So the Ten Commandments, though stated to keep us to refrain from certain activities that are harmful to others, it's a no-brainer. Don't commit adultery, it's a no-brainer. When adultery is committed, there's all kinds of problems that happen. Every society has laws against committing adultery. Every nation, region, and antiquity and in modern day has laws against stealing. Who doesn't get that stealing is wrong? I mean, those are just basic social, societal realities. And we just have it stated as a fundamental recognition in the Old Testament of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments forbid 
murder. We understand that. You have heard that it was said. So when he talks to his audience and he refers back to that old commandment, he is affirming and recognizing a a fundamental realization, understanding that everybody has. Now the challenge is, is what he does as he continues to uh, engage his audience and talks to us as to what the true meaning of living as a Christian is all about. But I say unto you, he will talk in just a moment in giving us a little deeper understanding of what the law really intended. Murder is a horrible crime against humanity. We would all believe that. Think of the collateral damage. You know, it was, um, uh, it was really sad and uh, depressing to think of the collateral damage of all the families who lost loved ones and how everyone is so affected. you got the immediate family, you got the friends, you got you know, the broader family. So many people are impacted when acts of violence are committed against an individual, groups of individuals. It's just uh, far-reaching. This has to be one of the reasons because it is so unlike God to harbor such homicidal thoughts and to have intentions to harm people that we have this this commandment to emphasize this restraint from these homicidal acts. Crimes against people. And so when Jesus begins and begins to invite the people in his discussion, he begins on common ground. Everybody agrees. You've heard it's been said. You've lived by this. Now, it's not that everybody has always practiced it. People have committed acts of crime. They've been, you know, uh, judged. There's been uh, trials and juries, and people have been executed. People have been thrown in jail. Uh, So those things happen. And so you have common ground between Jesus and his audience. Yes, yes, that's right. We understand that. Now, the second thing is this. What really is the intent of the law? See, we all recognize the act of murder is wrong. But what is it that the law is really trying to get to and cause people to think about? And so this is when Jesus in Matthew 5 and verse 22, listen to what he says. Here's the contrasting word. But you've heard that it was said... We all understand this. This is what it says. Read for yourself. Exodus 20. You shall not murder. You shall not kill. Then he says, but I say unto you. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus is preaching a fire and brimstone sermon here. <laughs> Why bring hell into this? I mean, this is, uh, this is sort of upping the ante in this discussion. So Jesus, as the, the new Moses, as Moses brought the Ten Commandments down, one of the commandments stated, you shall not kill. Jesus goes up into the mountain, he sits down, And he gives this sermon on the mount, and he comes. You have heard, 
but I say. Now, Jesus is not replacing this fundamental aspect or this idea that it's wrong to kill someone or to hurt someone in that way. He's not replacing that at all. In fact, what Jesus is doing is revealing the intent of what the law achieves or should achieve. In other words, the law commits that act, but see, the act starts way before the act is committed. And so Jesus is always concerned by backing up. It's the same thing, you know, don't look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery. Well, that's, that's pretty profound. That kind of backs it up more. It's the same thing in this particular text. So what does he mean when he talks about uh, the prohibition against these words and these actions? But I say unto you, remember Jesus is talking here. He's given us the law. He's given us the understanding. Not replacing. But he's given us the true meaning, the idea. And then in a moment we'll look at even a more substantial understanding of the way of Christ. So what are the roots of hostility? Well, they're revealed in two ways. The roots of hostility are revealed in what you think and what you say. (laughs) How you think, what you say, reveals the formation, the roots out of which could lead to homicidal acts. Well, that gets a little bit personal. I mean, who can really read one another's mind? You can't read my mind. I have to tell you what I'm thinking, really. You might can guess, maybe by my facial expressions, uh, you might guess that I'm worried about something, I'm upset about something, I'm angry about something. But you really don't know until I reveal it. But see, God's different. Jesus indicates that the divine being is different than that. So he goes back, and it's your thoughts, and it's your words that serve as indications of your character. So, if I look at what Jesus says, I have to admit that sometimes... Horrible and serious crimes have been committed against the faith community, the church, the kingdom of God, people who are citizens of the kingdom. If Jesus backs it up and says the roots that lead to this horrible act begin with thoughts and then words then I have a mandate that I've got to watch what I think about and what I say. How I think about others and what I say to others. Because it is a revelation of a dangerous condition. That's how these ultimate acts begin. People harbor, have been done wrong. They harbor the bitterness. 
Some people want to take revenge. Some people get upset, and it's their thoughts, it's their words that are there to constrain a person, an individual, before they would act in such a way that would be hostile to others. And so Jesus is recognizing you've got to know what you're thinking, and you've got to realize what you're saying, and be sure these things are holy. (laughs) Okay, let me talk a little bit about that. How often do you have disparaging thoughts about others? How often in our minds do we make comparisons, engage in mental judgmentalism, view other people, disparage them, create a, you know, a stereotype or, or whatever in order to make us feel better or you know, to make or demean the other one in our own minds and eyes? I don't know. I can't read your mind. I can only say that since I'm human and I have thoughts sometimes like that, I'm sure you do too. You get hurt by someone, you read what someone wrote on a social media thing, um, you get upset about something, and the first thing that begins to work is what? Your mind, your thoughts. What do we do with those? How do we handle that? How do we constrain that? How do we change that? Jesus says, be careful, because especially in kingdom living, in the church, it can be very, very impactful in a negative way. Let me give you an example of that. Turn to James in the New Testament. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and so forth. I find it interesting that in the language you have the word murder used. And this has always been a challenge as to what is the significance of this word murder. Were there actually Christians, you know, that James is writing to that says they're murdering one another? Well, I think it's more metaphorical in light of how John uses it. One who withholds his uh, compassion to someone is, is it's like almost a, a being a murderer of the individual. You're not helping, you're not assisting, you're not acting like a brother or sister, of course. So you might as well be classified as a murderer. Now that's strong language that gets the attention. And it's meant to get our attention. You fight and quarrel. How is it that in the kingdom of God we have fighting and quarreling? Notice what he says. It's in the contemplation of your mind, your passions, the war within you. So your thoughts, your actions. <clears throat> I basically have seen all the vices in the world exhibited in the church, and sometimes they're more horrible in the church than they are in the world. <clears throat> I 
When the world is to be counterculture, it's fascinating to me that we don't constrain the thoughts that make us worldly. We don't attempt or try to put them in this. Someone says, well, you can't help what you think. You know, things pop in your mind. You think about stuff. Oh, I can help not stewing over something. You know, I can involve my mind in something else and not allow it to reach the stage of bitterness until I'm treating someone in such a way as they are dead to me, right? Is anyone dead to you? (laughs) Anyone in the church that you feel that way about? See, disparaging thoughts, they fuel the anger of God's people. It just fuels the anger. It kind of cements the emotion. It cements and fuels. It's it's throwing, you know, wood onto the fire, gasoline on it. Uh, You just stoke it. And you allow it to, to run free without constraining it, without exercising your Christianity and think on the things which are above. It's a mind game, folks. The internal challenges happen in that struggle and war within. And so Jesus is saying it's, it's not just simply the homicidal act. It starts way before that. And my people stop it way back there. My people are the ones who put forth the effort to constrain those thoughts. And then there's something else. What about disparaging words? See, disparaging words sever relationships, do they not? You say something ugly about someone to someone behind their back or to them, you've you strained the relationship. It's severed. It's just the way the human you know, mind works the way we are as human beings. You know, I, I gravitate to people who are encouraging and say nice things to me, but those who say ugly things to me, I tend to not get around them. I mean, I can't, that's just the way it is. In kingdom living, the challenge is to recognize the value in every member of the Lord's church as being significant and Whether I am hurt or not, I behave Christianly because I'm a Christian. If I am wronged, if I am hurt, if someone says something, yes, I have Matthew 18. I can go to that person. Isn't that interesting? This is the way Jesus defines it. Go to that person, talk to them, try to work it out. If they don't come, you know, bring the church into it. See, there's even a methodology in how to create reconciliation. But see, in our culture, in this idea of fairness, and in the culture that says, I have my rights, even us as Christians, we stand up on our rights and say, how dare you? And we act like worldly people by saying disparaging words about them. I don't know how many times preachers are chewed up around the dinner table or elders or deacons or other members of the church. I don't know how many times you talk about other people in a very disparaging way. It's so easy to do. I know it. It's easy. I've done it regrettably. Our thoughts and our words. Back in... uh, 
ancient days. There's two words that Jesus mentioned uh, in the um, New English Standard Version. It's just uh, insults. Uh, there is an Aramaic word. It's not translated. It's transliterated. It's raka. It just means imbecile. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a disparaging word. Okay? It's what they said to one another in antiquity. You imbecile. And to be called that was to be insulted. And then you have the Greek word moron. <laughs> we also have an English word moron. That's where it comes from. Empty head, stupid, foolish. And that's the idea. It's a disparaging word. God's word, the Old Testament, talks a lot about fools. And to call a fellow Jew a fool is to berate them. It's to insult them in a most severely extreme way. Can't say anything's any worse by maybe, maybe saying they're uncircumcised, <laughs> which Stephen did. But he had a reason to get their attention. In the kingdom living, in our relationships with one another, be careful, young people, when you get together and you talk and the chatter. How many times have we seen uh, horrible instances in which young people have destroyed their lives because of the chatter they heard? It's just chatter, we say. No. It's homicide. Get your attention? It's, 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 it's the roots of thoughts and words that lead to a, uh, an, an extreme action. Oh, we may not go all the way over there and actually, you know, commit homicide, but I tell you what, we might chew up somebody, you know, and let them finish or we chew up somebody and let them leave, and they're gone. See, the challenge of the church is that we're all different. Uh, we all have different preferences. We all have different looks, likes. We all are drawn to people like us. Uh, we're all drawn to um, form, you know, close-knit groups, and, and that's fine, but they can become cliques that is exclusive. Whereas in the kingdom of God, we are to be a, a, a people that is constantly thinking about others and how to bring someone who's marginal in and make them feel important. Because in God's eyes, they're what? They're important, right? And so Jesus says, you know, these disparaging words and uh, these insults, you think that one who commits homicide is liable to the court and all that? What do you think about in God's court? And that interesting how he, he brings in hellfire in that situation? See, God's court has higher standards. God's court, Jesus is revealing, goes to the transformation of life. And so when we put the death of the old man, uh, when we see him resurrect himself, we need to, get him, you know, we need to bury him again. You know, sometimes he's like the zombies, and he keeps, he keeps coming up, and we're always fighting him. We've got to bury and keep him buried. I'm thankful for the grace of God, because I'd be in serious trouble. I hope that we recognize 
that being who we are as people, the ease at which we say disparaging things and we have disparaging thoughts about others. Now, Jesus ramps it up, Matthew 5, 23 to 26. Let's read that quickly. Matthew 5. Twenty three twenty six. He says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say unto you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is very, very interesting what Jesus says here. Here he's not just talking about the intent of the law, but he's talking about the spirit of the law. Okay, The spirit of the law is to pursue. This is important. The spirit of the law is to pursue reconciliation. That's the spirit of Christianity, to pursue reconciliation. First of all, we should take the initiative to settle disputes. If you think you're going to come and worship... You need to think twice. You need to take the initiative, have the courage to settle disputes. Jesus says, you know a brother has all against you. He's not talking about who's responsible for who, but someone has all against me. That I need to do what I can to settle disputes. That's what the Lord is asking me to do. Because reconciliation is primary in God's kingdom. It's primary. And so Philippians 4, 2, and 3, you have the occasion. The book of Philippians is known as the Christian book of joy. Okay, that's, a, uh, that's an oxymoron, actually. It's, it's, it's not the book of joy. The reason joy is talked so much because it's the church that doesn't have joy. <laughs> and it doesn't have joy because of chapter 4, when it says, Euodia and Syntyche are involved in a fight. We're not told what it was, but they are in a horrible dispute. And Paul says, he says, Clement and my fellow worker, true comrade, he doesn't name him, just calls him true comrade. He says, assist these women and help them. What is Paul asking them to do? To seek reconciliation, resolution. Don't allow this to fester. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, we often think about that in regard to false teaching. What about in disparaging thoughts and words and actions? That can be contagious too. And so here, we need to settle the disputes. Look at Colossians 3. Colossians 3. I was trying to look at the clock up there and see how I'm doing. Can't see it even with my glasses. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5. After talking about uh, uh, if we've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things which are above, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In this you too once walked when you were living in them. Notice the words he uses now. 
but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Isn't that interesting? All of those words have to do with those um, uh, disparaging thoughts and disparaging words. That's a whole list there. He says, put them away. Do not lie one to another, seeing that you have been that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See, every day is a challenge. We are renewed by the knowledge of Christ, the work of God in our lives, and so we put to death those things so we can be free to live for Christ. Secondly, there's something else in the spirit of the law in pursuing reconciliation. We should resolve issues as quickly as possible. See, in the two examples that he gave in expanding on this, Jesus says, if you come and offer your gift, you know, he's engaging in worship. Remember that someone has ought against you. You know, leave your gift there. Go pursue reconciliation. See, that's primary, reconciliation. At least attempt it. And then come and worship freely. Then he says, uh, If you're in conflict, uh, take advantage of the time on the way to the sentencing or to the court (laughs) uh, during this span of time that you have opportunity because if it reaches a certain point, you'll be thrown in prison and then you'll stay there until you've paid the last cent. Now, this is really a colloquialism. Paying the last cent means that this person is being squeezed you know, it's like uh, you're washing your car uh, and, you know, you take a shimmy and you dry it off and you squeeze the water out. You know, I squeeze it, I turn it, I turn it, I do my hand like that and the water just keeps coming out. That's the idea. You won't come out until you've paid the last cent. In other words, that's a negative. That means that you're hurting yourself as a result of your lack of initiative of pursuing Reconciliation. It's detrimental to you, to me. So I need to resolve issues as quickly as I can so I don't become impacted negatively by these things. Failing to do otherwise is detrimental. Look at Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, Paul says, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's the answer of course. But if you, and this is interesting, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. You see what he's saying? See, this is being thrown in jail and squeezed until you paid the last cent. When you bite and devour what we think, what we say, 
will we not consume one another? In other words, we're hurting ourselves. We might think that we're making ourselves feel better. We might think that we are affirming our own righteousness, self-righteousness. We might think that uh, in doing those things, we have the right to because of the hurts that were done against us. And I think, or rather Jesus would say, that we need to think about that. (laughs) We need to think twice about those things. Challenging, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're being exposed to some uh, ethical living that has a high standard to it. But if anyone is going to practice it, it's going to be us as God's people. This is what the world craves, even though they don't see it. This is what impresses the world, even though they won't recognize it or affirm it. But I tell you what, people are drawn to such living So, where I go from here, be careful in your group discussions, when you're chatting with one another, when you see it turn to disparaging other people, just stop, walk away, don't engage in it, because it's not right, it's not right. If you're harboring um, thoughts, then engage your mind in something else to get your mind off of it. In other words... Make the effort, and I think you'll be blessed as a result in doing it. And I think, surprisingly, I know because I've done this, I have seen reconciliation from horrible experiences in the past simply because I took the initiative. I'm still doing that with some. But I think that's what needs to be done. It's not easy. Um, Doesn't mean that hurts are gone. Doesn't mean anything except I prefer to live for Jesus than to think and to talk this way. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to uh, talk a little bit more deeply about what it means to be a Christian um, exposing the heart is, is uh, not always a comfortable thing to do. Um, looking into your word and recognizing um, things that we need to, to change, uh, behaviors that we need to work on. We do understand what Paul says about the battle that's within between the spirit and the flesh. We do confess to you our sins. We recognize our um, our immaturity in so many ways. Uh, we, we are so thankful for your, your patience. We're thankful for your, your grace and mercy. And as you extend that to us, help us to learn to extend it to others. Thank you for the example of Jesus and for the hard-hitting sermon that we've studied. We pray in his name. Amen.